Hey there film fans and welcome to another episode of The Real Take. As this week we celebrate International Women's Day, we are shining a light, a huge, big, bright light, the biggest light we can find on three incredible female directors. One is known for being a pioneer of independent cinema, working during the 1950s predominantly. Another is the queen of romantic comedies. And lastly, the effortlessly cool director of some of the most quotable teen comedies of the 90s. Female filmmakers have never had the easiest of times behind the camera. And tonight we are going to be discussing some of the challenges that they faced whilst creating some of their best movies. Let's roll titles. Sit down and grab a glass. Sinead Ross and I'll have made a podcast. It's the real take, breaking it down. Having fun and talking movies. Da 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 da. Talking movies. Yes, it is the real take, the podcast by film fans for film fans. And Niall and Ross are here, and I'm not going to make any cheap shots tonight because it's serious. I've been up to my eyes and stats, <laughs> statistics all afternoon. It's a pretty frustrating read that there I've had. Yeah, we, we often say that, you know, we're doing an episode about a movie that there could be a book written about. But we are mm. literally now doing an episode about a topic that there are courses, university mm. courses talked, <laughs> talked about. So I was going to say... International Women's Day is not just for one day. I think we should do this regularly, maybe. We should try and put it into every season that we do going forward. I know this is a shock to both of you, but what do you think about that? I love it. Of course I love it. Uh, yeah. And I think, you know, uh, you know, when we talk about your pick, that, you know, it's, it's it brings me to, you know, a point where, you know, shockingly, ashamedly, uh, I had no idea who your director is. I don't know anything really about her. Haven't, except for something very quickly that I Googled. So we all could do with an education in the amazing women. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Niall and Ross and Sinead are the people to give you an education. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. If anyone knows, it's us guys. Yeah. What I would say is when I was doing a bit of a research for this podcast is I was surprised with how many films that I knew and loved and had no idea they were by uh, women authors, by women directors. So it, it was an interesting, it was an interesting deep dive for me. So, you know, I was earlier on today, I was looking at, uh, and I'd say you guys might have heard of this, it's called mm. the Celluloid Ceiling Report. And um, this is something that is pretty much the longest running, most comprehensive uh, study of women's employment in film and um, they, they release this every single year and I think it's like the 23rd I want to say edition was released um, earlier this year and you know once again essentially women are comprising of 18% of the filmmakers calling the shots in over 250 domestic features I think is what they they, they go through now it is a little bit up apparently it was 13% in 2019 and 8%, 8% in 2018. So it is moving up. But if you think of it like 18% of all domestic movies that are made like in, in a year, pretty much like 18% of this is women. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, it's like I, the statistic I have here is from 2018. I'm not sure where I, I found it, but I found it when I was Googling. And it's it's the top 100 grossing films. So mm. it's not so much everything that was made. And mm. of the 112 directors 
behind the top 100 grossing films of 2018, 3.6% were women. I'm not sure what that 0.6% was, but you know, it's not it's not a good good statistic, even though it's going in the right way since then. Well, yeah, you could argue that maybe when you look at something like maybe the Oscars as a barometer of where uh, female representation is going, especially when you look at maybe directors' roles there, like last year, for example, there was there was no uh, nominees in the in the director category for or in the, there was no uh, females in the best director category, and that's a bit of a trend that's been going on over the years because the last person who was uh, who was nominated for best director was Greta Gerwig back that was back in twenty eighteen for Lady Bird. Before that, we had to go back eight years. Uh, to 2010 for Catherine Biglow who is still the only woman who's won uh, an Oscar for Best Director and she won that for the the Hurt Locker before that you have to go back six years for Sofia Capella and Lost in Translation before that ten years for Jane Campion and The Piano and before that you have to go back 17 years um, for Lena Wertmuller and Seven Beauties and from there you had to go back 48 years to the very first academy awards so in the entire history of the oscars there's just been five women nominated in the best director category which and is, one winner basically and one winner yeah, yeah and one winner which yeah. is very stark and I, reading. I, yeah i think we had this conversation last year Sinead, when greta gerwig didn't get the nomination for mm. little women you know it seems like every year we, we're always talking about this whatever about we might say that there are more female directors working in Hollywood now but they don't seem to be getting recognised and you know certainly not when it comes to awards now I wouldn't say that awards is the be all and end all of of achievement you know certainly Mm. you could make a great movie and it couldn't be nominated or it's not going to be nominated but yeah it does it although we might like certainly my pick I'm going to be talking about the early days of Hollywood but and we can say that things are getting better but they're, they're, and they are slowly, incrementally getting better, but um, not as much as maybe we might like. Yeah, and I mean, don't we, we can't even begin to talk as well about, you know, the fact that no women of colour have ever been nominated for directing um, as well. You know, they were, uh, you know, that was a huge talking point as well back in 2015 with Selma. You know, there was no, yeah. uh, that was a, a snub there. It's certainly at the a time. movie that should have been, and mm. maybe this year, in, I'm, who knows what the awards are going to be like this year because it's been cuckoo bananas in the cinema <laughs> so but regina king uh, who's an actress and i'm amazing I love her. great and i'm going to be talking about an actress who then you know what would you say transferred her skills into going into directing and her movie one night in miami is that what it's called is on amazon prime and i think there's a lot of oscar buzz about that maybe primarily i think around the actors so i think it'd be i i would say if she doesn't get a a nod for directing in this it's so hard with awards you know Mm. you hear all this buzz about you know this is a great performance and therefore this this uh this film is great but you know the director is the person who who allowed that great performance to to live so i would say you know, if she's not recognised this year, it'll be another year, especially for women and women of colour where they're not, they get another knockback. So let's see. 
let us see is right i suppose we're probably better off going back to the you know to, to the early days with yourself niall first um you know your your uh pick is you know as i mentioned there in the intro a real pioneer you know for the likes of uh, myself and uh ross's pick uh you know coming later on so maybe you should kick it off all right yes i am the old man the grand old man of <laughs> so it is usually i like to deep dive i suppose maybe and go back into like there's there's movies that you'll be talking about that i that i love and there's other great female directors that i could have talked about tonight but i kind of went to go back to where it all began if if you like um there's a great i really have to uh, um uh if you can find it there's a great turner movie classics uh series a documentary series 14 hour long episodes about willem sorry about women make film a new road through cinema and that's by the film critic mark cousins who people would know as the other film critic who's not mark commode yes he is fantastic (laughs) and i have only managed to see clips of it on youtube and then crib them and rob them for this evening. <laughs> but I would say if if you get a chance to track down that series, because it doesn't only focus, as we, we will probably tonight, on Hollywood. It talks about female filmmakers throughout the world, um, through the history of cinema. And if anybody who's seen any documentaries about films by Mark Cousins, um, they will know that it's really well-researched and a, a great thing. Um, I would like maybe to start about a little, or talk about a little clip that, or a, a, what, what would you say, a cutting that I yeah. found from a, a newspaper, which was, um, and this was like, I would say, certainly after the uh, actress, director that I'm going to be talking about had started her career. And when there were more and more uh, female filmmakers coming into the industry and i'm not sure what uh, uh, newspaper it's from but <clears throat> excuse me it's a little kind of snippet that will let you kind of know what the vibe was when there were more and more women kind of coming into the industry and this is from a, a, a film reviewer who says that males have never shown any particular resentment at taking orders on the set from the opposite sex not so with lady thespians they resent one of their own kind telling them how to act they're inclined to pout break into tears and storm to the front office pouring out their alleged woes so i don't know what journalist wrote that i wish i did so i could name and shame him here <laughs> and basically this is this was something that came out when there were more and more like in the the 70s and 80s when there were more and more uh, women directors coming out and it was kind of addressing it was a piece if you like addressing kind of the predominance of that and it speaks a lot to um a lot of prejudices so first of all you kind of go well the reason there's no female directors is that women don't like to be directed by females well do you know what right just to kind of i suppose my real experience okay uh this is kind of an argument that's thrown around a lot as well about um female radio hosts uh, presenters whatever uh people will say well predominantly you know women are listening to the radio and they don't like to hear female voices on the radio this was like the argument for so long like which is kind of so it's still it's still an argument that's there it is there definitely uh now 
I, you won't hear many women making that argument, obviously. No. Um, but, you know, it's something that I have, uh, let's say, come up against in, in, in my own professional career. And now, I suppose it's probably because women can be very critical of other women. And as much as we would like to believe that we are together as a sisterhood, you only have to, you know not even online you can see it amongst uh, women when they're talking to each other about other women there's this constant cutting down instead of building up and that's a real problem i think and that's you know something that's probably um at the core of a lot of these issues at times you know uh, and i think it's because uh, you'll, you'll hear you'll hear women uh, particularly say with the whole uh, radio host situation you will hear women going oh her voice grates on me nerves and you know oh geez i can't listen to her now her voice is too irritating i've never gotten that because of my dulcet <laughs> tones so i i <laughs> so but i have i have heard this idea that you know uh women don't like hearing other women and it and it's it's something i think we need to we need to keep we need to build each other up that's that's the the crux of this i think you know yeah well i i mean th- i think that's a straw the dog argument which or a straw man argument i think is the term which you know that people put up and go that's not really the issue the issue really is that the people in power who has the have the opportunity to give those jobs they they are men yes you know? so if there were more women up there they could be in a position to support more women but anyway that's a that's something else so my pick for this evening is uh, an actress director producer writer called uh, Ida Lupino. So, Sinead, you, uh, you've you confessed that you didn't know, and I was surprised no. maybe you might not have come across maybe, because she is well known as... Uh, she directed one of the best film noir movies called The Hitchhiker, which I'll be talking about in when I talk about one of her movies. Um, Ross, had you heard of her, or...? I hadn't until you said it, uh, or until until you said her name, and I looked her up there, and I recognise a couple of the... The, the names of, of movies like The Big and Miss, High Sierra and uh, The Hitchhiker. But no, I've never yeah. seen one of the movies, but um, I, I was kind of a little bit amazed because I in my head, I didn't think there was female filmmakers, probably naively. I didn't think there was um, women who were directing and producing that early. Yeah, and she wasn't the first female director, but we might mm. talk about that a little later. Um, now, how I first came across her and you're always making fun of me because I always bring it back into comic books but in the <laughs> Batman TV series of 1966 she played a bad guy she played the entrancing Dr. Cassandra in an episode of the same name and she was a villainess and an arch enemy of Batman and that Batman TV series was famous for having people like Roddy McDowell, Vincent Price in there so mm. that would have been my the first time I'd seen these, I'd seen these actors play people and I kind of went well if they're a bad guy in Batman then they must be somebody who has a career or had a career that I should be aware of she also turned up uh, as the murderess in a few episodes of Columbo Um, and she was also which I came across then the first woman to ever direct an episode of the Twilight Zone and she's the first person to play a character in the Twilight Zone and direct an episode of it and they're two terrific episodes uh the 16 millimeter shrine from 1959 and a, the one that she directed is called the masks 
uh, from 1964 and it is really a fantastic episode of of that old black and white series um and i i, I i'm always attracted i suppose to actors because i have a background in acting myself um and it has been i think one of the most reliable pipelines for uh, women to get into directing in america a lot of actresses that you will know will have you know become directors have gone on to direct things and bancroft angelina jolie jodie foster elizabeth banks as we mm -hmm. talked about regina king there and uh, olivia wilde who you know got really good reviews for booksmart um, and her new film is getting a lot of kind of online buzz called Don't Worry Darling. But it's mostly getting kind of buzz because she cast Harry Styles and they're supposed to have a, you know, in a, a real life relationship in, in there. But I, Which I did bring like, that up. Yeah. It's kind of like, um, you know, the people, it's like almost they're focused on the gossipy aspects of it more so than the... Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I did want to bring it up because one of the the online articles that I read was headlined somebody told Olivia Wilde to have three fights a day on set to show her power as a director and we might talk <laughs> talk about it when I think Olivia Wilde knows that's bad bad advice yeah. but you know we might talk about maybe just go on my... the first day and fire someone that's all you need to do well that was as what was it Orson Welles as Chandler Bing said Orson yeah. Welles said that I don't think that's true but anyway, anyway, let's get to my pick. My pick is, as I say, actor, actress turned director Ida Lupino. And she did say in an interview when she was asked, um, you know, for women, directing is almost impossible to do unless you're an actress or a writer with power. And I think power is the thing that I would like as, <laughs> to focus about, <laughs> you know, about tonight and kind of maybe we can we can. Un unravel a knot a little bit whether that's power if it's box office appeal or whether it's power access to finance uh, financing or a connection to other artists and and actors and filmmakers that you could bring into your pro project or just experience in how movies are marketed and f the film films are made like power is the thing i think that um will will help or you know that's why these women get these jobs i suppose so a little bit of background um she was born in london in 1918 uh she was uh she had starred in more than 60 films by 1965 so that'll give you mm -hmm. some idea about the amount of like filmography that, that she has but she was born to be a film star basically because she was the daughter of a famous british theatrical family and she made her film debut at the age of 14 and by the time she was 15 she had moved across the ocean to the US and um, she had first of all auditioned uh, to play Alice in a production by Paramount of Alice in Wonderland. But she says herself that I had a terribly deep voice even when I was a little girl. And they, they said, well, you can't be Alice. You sound like Mae West. <laughs> so Alice obviously wasn't in the cards for her. But the voice, coupled with her ability to channel these intense emotions, um, that led her toward a, a great uh, film career. She played a fantastic villainous breakout performance in a movie called The Light That Failed, where she played uh, an artist's model. And that caught the attention of Warner Brothers, who at the time, Bette Davis was the queen of Warner Brothers. So she was the feisty, powerful female that Warner Brothers had on contract and 
she would play those parts. But they wanted, if you like, a substitute. They wanted uh, any films that Bette Davis would go, no, I'm not doing that. They could throw then to Ida Lupino. And Ida Lupino kind of went, well, I don't really want to be the second kind of choice, if you like. But she did do some movies at Warner Brothers. She played kind of the femme fatale. She was, because she was. She was tough. She was smart. She was cynical. She was never totally kind of hard. There was always a vulnerability to her characters, if you like. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, but like I say, the limitations of the studio system frustrated her and she ended up spending a lot of time suspended. So that would mean that if you if you if you were on contract to Warner Brothers and you refused X amount of roles, you would be suspended and you wouldn't get offered many more. So she would still go into the set and she spent a lot of her time um kind of hanging around directors and lighting guys and set guys and all this so she said at the time that what she was interested in really rather than taking down hand-me-down parts from bet davis was she wanted to create stories and personalities and films uh and she wanted at one stage maybe she would say in the future to go behind the camera instead of being in front of the camera so when her contract uh, came up with Warner Brothers, she went and she went and made her own production company, which is why I think she's probably going to be the, you know, the the first kind of, if you like, independent female filmmaker that we might be talking about. And that production company was set up. It was called The Filmmakers. And she really wanted to ta talk about or make re realistic issue orientated films that would be an alternative to the glamour and the melodrama that were going out, being churned out week after week by the, the major, major studios. And when the filmmakers started making movies, uh, they would go and use relocations for authenticity, but also because it was cheaper. Um, they would not get big name actors also for authenticity because it was cheaper. And their mantra was, it's not who's in the film, but what is the film? Mm. And the what of the films that she wanted to make, and they didn't make a lot of movies, the filmmakers, as a production company, um, but it, a lot of them, they tackled taboo topics like unplanned pregnancy and rape and subjects that the studios would not touch with a 10-foot pole because they wanted to appeal to the broadest audience possible. Um, so the first film that the filmmakers production company made was a film called Not Wanted in 1949. And it's about a, an out of wedlock pregnancy that um, it, it was the one that kind of pushed, although I think she was kind of edging that way, pushed Ida into being a director because several days into production, the director that they had hired for this film, Elmer Clifton, had a heart attack and he couldn't oh, finish God. filming. Mm. So um, Ida, who produced the film and co-wrote the screenplay she had to step in and direct and no one else knew the material as well as she did obviously and it was a small budget they couldn't afford to hire anyone else um, especially at the last minute and although she would kind of go on and go oh, I never really wanted to be a director I think you can read early interviews with her and you can think that that was brewing all the time she wasn't happy yeah. just in front of the camera uh, Ida completed that film and she actually refused to be credited on it and that was called Not Wanted and it cost only 150000 to make uh, which was a small sum in 1949 
but it easily earned back that within a, the first two weeks of its release and obviously then the the call was out for Ida to direct more movies under the production company banner and her second career began and it was a career which uh, gave us movies uh, like Never Fear which is about a, a promising young dancer who's stricken with uh, polio Outrage which is about a brave uh, young woman who uh, has to deal with sexual assault assault and this was back in 1950 when these mm. things were never mm. talked about you know um, The Hard Fast and Beautiful which I've not seen I don't know what it's about but it sounds brilliant uh, I hope Vin Diesel will be in that uh, <laughs> <laughs> And uh, two movies from 1953, The Bigamist uh, and the movie that I'll be talking about later on, The Hitchhiker. Um, and, uh, you know, The Bigamist is kind of a soapy kind of a story about a man who's trying to adopt a child with his wife and the the person who's uh, getting to whether or not they can adopt it finds out that he has a, a second wife and child somewhere else. Um, I think it's the kind of, Thing you would enjoy on a Sunday afternoon if you like mm. or your granny would enjoy but the hitchhiker which like I say I'll be talking about is a, a totally different animal you know it's it's a, it's a real um, sweaty uh, story about a murderous psychopath um, who ends up you know getting in the car with two guys um, and then the, the last movie I think that she directed was 1966's film which is set in a, a girls convent school uh, called The Trouble with Angels stars Hayley Mills which I, I've i heard about but I haven't seen it and she stars in that as well but um, like I said she's not the first female director in Hollywood mm -hmm. but when she did join the Directors Guild in 1950 she was the second female member um, oh, right. after a director <laughs> called Dorothy Arzner so Dorothy Arzner though at the time had retired so when she joined the Directors Guild she was the only female on a roster of 1300 members and she was the only female who was still working. So she was a, a huge kind of, I would say, anomaly. We talk about Olivia Wilde and Harry Styles, but she was, you know, the papers would kind of go, oh, look, it's it's a, what a sensation. A woman is directing. Mm. Um, and she was treated as a bit of a curiosity rather than something that was, you know, shocking and improper. So they did kind of support her a little bit. And she was even invited to present the Best Director Awards at the 1950 Oscars. And I just want to quote uh, a little bit of her speech from when... So she was giving this award now to... There were five, obviously, contenders. And, um, you know, they were all men. So this is her speech before she, she gave it out. Um, if, if a genie ever gave me a wish, I think I know how I'd spend it. I'd want my name on a list like this. Those nominated for the best achievement in directing are, and then she listed them. And the winner that year in 1950 was Joe Mankiewicz, who won for a film called A Letter to Three Wives, which I've never seen. Um, and he accepted the Oscar and uh, he accepted it by saying, thank you, Brother Lapino. On the membership list of the Screen Actors Guild, her name is Irving Lapino. So I thought that was incredibly tone deaf looking back at it I mean again we kind of go it's 1950 but uh, we might talk about how women had to you know maybe adjust themselves or put up with things like that or look at how their gender was viewed to be accepted in that and she was accepted you know because the, the studios knew that she had she wasn't a big 
she wasn't going to change the tide of things in 1950 because she was cobbling together low budget films by herself um, and she wasn't a threat to their institution. She didn't have the money. She didn't have, I don't think she had the intention to really be a, a competitor on a big thing. She did advocate for more female directors, but she didn't, there was no social movement that would change things and challenge the status quo. Um, and as well, at the time, she was still useful to the studios because she was still making movies. She was still an actress, you know. Mm, um, that's so they curious. were, they were, yeah. Well, they were, they were still let, letting her do her thing. Yeah, because um, I was, I was surprised with how you, you were saying she was seen as somewhat of a curiosity. Because when you mentioned on her first uh, movie that she directed, she went kind of uncredited on that on the, on the yeah. credits. And I, I was curious about that because I like I heard before like if you look at someone like. J.K. Rowling for Rowling, for example, the author. There's no her middle name. There's no K. I think it's Joanne Rowling is her name, and she added to J.K. Rowling, so her her gender would be ambiguous. Um, because there was a belief that young boys wouldn't boy wouldn't uh, wouldn't want to consume Harry Potter if they knew it was written by a woman. And I was just wondering um, if that was. No, I th I think from what I've read, it was more in respect to the director who had the heart attack. Yes, so I gotcha. now I I don't know if that's true. You'd have to I'd have to do more research with that. But I don't think it was a conscious thing that she went. I'm not going to, because I think the people who knew that she had directed that movie and stepped in at the eleventh hour and got it mm. going and then brought it in under you know and then recouped so much of the budget, it meant that she could then move on. If she had done it, like if she had taken a nom de plume, but you can't really in movies. I don't think because people know that. You know, you're there. You're calling the shots, literally, yeah. every day. So I don't, I don't think it, there's a, it's comparable with that. You know, but it's interesting mm. that you know, as you say, um, in a in a in the publishing industry, that so many years later, it's you could still ask that question. You know, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. I might just uh, say that before I finish talking about her, mm. um, you know, she she had a real interesting style of directing. You know. Um, she, because at the time I think when I say that she she was seen as a curiosity, it was seen a little bit like newspapers would still go, oh that's just the studio going. I'll let the woman have her little playthings there and make her little films because she then goes and makes you know these big budget movies with the studios then so it's it's almost seen as it's like you're it's frivolous it's as if they just want to let the star have a little kind of a vanity project that they go off and do even back then in in the the 50s you know um and she did say interviewed subsequently and you know it's really the 70s when i think she started to be recognized that you know, she she had walked on sets and she had felt resentment from the crew and the actors uh, because she was a woman. But um, she she gave them no opportunity to, to say that she didn't belong there. So she just did her job as, you know, brilliantly. So they had no they had no way to kind of go, well, I don't want to be told what to do, whatever. Mm. Yeah, because, uh, that's a woman and I'm a man, you know, Um she she did adopt a kind of a non-threatening maternal persona on set which i don't think um that she had in real life because i've seen her performances i think um you can see that there's fire in this woman right there's a great uh scene that you can look at on youtube where 
it's a film noir movie called The Man I Love or something like that where um, she slaps a guy seven times in in succession <laughs> and she is oh, I mean it's it's brilliant it's worth looking up just for that it's just bam 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 so there's <laughs> fire in this woman you've got kids to think of this will be murder so was Gloria's death and this was a guy responsible boy. look out Petey Johnny Johnny let's just do one take of this please <laughs> <laughs> well i think that was the first take and last take when we first, <laughs> the poor guy who had to be slapped but yeah. she is fierce she is fierce and female and amazing and um but on as a director i think she was like she adopted this nickname mother so she had it on the back of her director's chair and she then gave a couple of uh uh, interviews where she would say you know if you want if you want a man to do something don't tell him to do it you you kind of go darling's mother has a problem i'd love to do this can you do it it sounds crazy i know but can you do it for mother now i don't think that takes anything away from her as a as an icon of mm. early cinema you know what i mean um she never kind of came out and went well i'm sorry i didn't go in and bust balls a little more but um i think she knew the world that she was operating in and thankfully it's a world that's changing you know but you only have to look at and like i say there's been books written about her and you know there's modules of university courses written about her so you can hear you know the testimonies from people who worked with her and they would say no she she was she didn't lose battles she she got everybody to do everything she wanted and by god if you know they they did it because she i think she played the game a little bit you know mm. so um she after her her the filmmakers which was her independent company uh went bust in 55 i think she became a television director and not only did she star in a lot of the biggest shows on tv gilligan's island bewitched the twilight zone like i say she also directed a lot of those um episodes you know she had a a kind of sad ending to her life um you can look that up. I don't really want to talk about it, but um, yeah, she. she uh, but um, you know, it, it's interesting to see. Like the last film that she directed was in 1966, which was The Trouble with Angels, and no other woman directed a film for a major studio until 1971, which uh, was uh, A New Leaf, uh, directed by Elaine May, who was a close second for the female director I'll be talking about this evening. Um, but I think then you know you're talking about the emergence of the women's movement and increased representation in the studio system so you've got producers and executives who are women and they're trying to get more women involved then in, and they help create more opportunities for uh, female directors and and you've got the uh, you've got things that that really speak to you've got stories that speak to women i suppose if you like um it's in i think the the other um actor director that i was thinking about talking about was um barbara streisand because mm. very soon after this you've got yentl and she directed and starred in that and that was a big awards hit but i thought that because of the subject and i do think that it's something that we should revisit maybe every season that i could not start the first one without giving a, a little shout out to ida lupino no, and what a shade it is! Is I'm I'm enthralled here listening about uh, all she's done. You know, as I as I mentioned, I hadn't a clue 
you know, anything about her. And that's, I suppose, kind of, I'm sure there's a couple of listeners nodding along with me here. That's the point of this, as you say, you know, is to really, you know, shine a light on these women who have been forgotten about, glossed over, not, I mean, that, she wasn't taught in my uh, extensive film courses uh, throughout college. Oh, and, shame, you know, shame on that course. For, for shame, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting that you, you mentioned Elaine May because, um, in fact, my pick of the night references her a little bit as well because um uh, basically when she was kind of coming up i suppose in the 70s uh you know like that she there, there she couldn't really look to an awful lot of female directors as people that were i suppose paving the way for her and i, I was looking at an article recently and she mentioned elaine may as being like the pretty much the, the one that kind of sprung to mind i suppose I am looking at Amy Heckerling, uh, the woman behind Fast Times at Richmond High. Look, he's talking and clueless. She is one of the highest grossing female filmmakers in Hollywood history, right? Yet many of her projects failed to take off or needed intervention from male colleagues in order to get made. So that's kind of interesting as well. Um, she's also a writer as well. Uh, she wrote and directed Look Who's Talking. Um, that's from 1989. That was a huge hit as well as as Clueless. But um, according to Box Office Mojo, the seventh, uh, she's the seventh highest grossing filmmaker, female filmmaker, sorry, of all time, and listed at a lifetime gross of 384 million and a good chunk of that came from look who's talking as as i mentioned um most people wouldn't recognize her in the street but it's hard to imagine that there are many adults among us who can't quote a line from at least one of our films could be hey bud let's party or it could be <laughs> as if <laughs> um she has seen a career punctuated by some high highs and very low lows and a few of them almost entered ended her um, time in the entertainment biz uh, for good but she's nothing if not resilient and uh, she has bounced back and I think it's perhaps her stubborn desire to do things her way that has kept her making movies but just to give you a little bit of background on her she was born May 7th 1954 in a Jewish neighborhood in the Bronx and many of her neighbors and the other tenants in her building were Holocaust survivors and um, her mother kept old kind of you know uh, newspapers covered in plastic preserved and she'd say to her you know here's the day when they started wearing gold stars or you know here's when we couldn't walk in the streets and um she speaks often about you know going off with her parents to you know people in the community and shops butcher you know that kind of thing and seeing them pull up their sleeves to show amy and her siblings their numbered tattoos so when asked what effect these had on her she says i guess it teaches you that the world is a place uh, is not a place that particularly likes you so that's, I suppose, the case for her Jewishness and also uh, the case for, you know, her experience as a woman uh, trying to make it her way, I suppose, in, in the film industry at, at the time when she was coming up. Uh, now, she decided she wanted to be a director um, when she was a teenager in the early 70s. But as I mentioned, she didn't really have a huge amount of female role models. You know, as I mentioned, she, she threw out the Elaine May, really. But um, when she said this to her father, he says, show me the New York Times and show me the, the, the want ads for female directors, uh, you know, which, of course, she couldn't, you know, so uh, it was tricky for her. But she set out anyway, and uh, she attended a film school with fiery determination. She worked three jobs and she applied to NYU Film School, um, uh, which she 
did Trojan work there and it got her into the American Film Institute's prestigious directing program. So kind of, um, I suppose, unlike uh, your pick, Niall, um, you know, who would have, I suppose, picked up uh, obviously being on film sets so much. And as an actress, she kind of honed her craft, whereas Amy Heckerling actually did go to directing school and film school. Um, now she says she found the program a bit snobby and elitist and she found it really difficult to adjust to Ellie's sunny optimism. She's a New Yorker <laughs> through and through. Um, but she thrived and she made important connections. So uh, one of her um, ex-boyfriends and long lo- lifelong friend was Martin Brest, uh, who of course would go on to make Beverly Hills Cop and Midnight Run. And actually, uh, I will be chatting about Beverly Hills Cop a little bit when I talk about um, a movie in 1001 films to see so i won't mention the too much of that just at the minute but um she has enjoyed a long lucrative and influential uh, career but i just think it's kind of shocking that she's not as much of a household name as her fellow teen flick patron saints cameron crowe john hughes or even nancy myers or nora efron and i think this partly may have something to do with the fact that she's um had quite a tumultuous second half of her career which included a lot of box office failures disastrous production deals and more or less a decade and a half languishing in what she calls director jail um now it's not in her personality to indulge in hollywood schmoozing she's not keen on selling and in fact her longtime agent says uh, his name's ken stovitz he says uh, she's never trying to please the studio executive like she's not going in going oh such and such was amazing or you know she just mm. doesn't schmooze right so that was kind of part of it um another part of it as well is um you know uh, her second movie after fast times which we will talk about later um johnny dangerously you know i think I can understand the move and why she did it. Uh, she was obsessed and, and has a mad love of gangster movies, but she didn't want to be pigeonholed for making just teen flicks kind of as such. So this is why she went into that kind of uh, parody of the uh, gangster genre. Uh, but of course the movie bombed. So this is kind of what happens. You know, if you're a young female director, okay, you've got one... Um, hit you know which was fast times at the time and she was relatively young she was only 27 when she directed that uh and then you go on and you make johnny dangerously despite you know the heavy hitters involved in this like michael keaton um you know hollywood doesn't really look too favorably on you um also she had uh you know um some bad experiences even though her her film um look who's talking was a huge hit uh, there was actually um, a lot of difficulties with that as well. Um, they The execs didn't want uh, John Travolta. This was pre-Pulp Fiction and he was in a bit of a career yeah. slump at the time. Yeah. They, they found it very hard to get the baby to talk as well, I heard. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so they, they didn't like him for it. Uh, but again, she was quite stubborn in her casting choices. And I think she made excellent casting uh, choices uh, throughout her career as well. Mm. Um, so she stuck to her guns on that one. Um and I think she kind of plays things on, on her own terms, you know, um, like she, she like she sticks to the guns. But also when it comes to when you look through pretty much all of her her, her, her movies, it has been people like John Landis um, spoke to, uh, I think it was on the set of 
Richmond High where they were unsure about her and what she was doing and there's a lot of kind of difficult subject matter in there and it wasn't just this hey man you know teen flick like I mean it's de- dealing with abortion and it's very much showing the the female uh, plight in all of that and how the man leaves her it's not exactly what the execs had in mind at the time where they wanted this kind of feel good party vibe teens getting into trouble uh, mm. sort of vibe uh, with it John Landis um, spoke up on her behalf and she only found out about this afterwards that uh, he'd visited the set and he went back to the execs and he says, no, she, she knows what she's doing kind of thing. Um, the same with, uh, look, he's talking uh, again. Um, I'm trying to think of the guy. Scott Rudin, Scott Rudin. Um, yes, how could I not know him? So again, you know, with another uh, few movies, uh, Scott Rudin intervened on her behalf as well and with, with Clueless, which I will talk about in detail uh, to kind of say, look, she knows what she's doing. So there's been a lot of that. There's been a lot of that uh, for, for Amy Heckerling's career, but arguably she has produced one of the most iconic, um, you know, really fantastic comedy that really does age well I think uh, in Clueless it's one of those ones that um, you know it's it's up there as being probably one of the greatest uh, teen flicks of all time and I think that's what she will be uh, ultimately remembered for she has She's one of these directors that, um, you know, didn't turn her nose up at TV uh, even back in the day when, uh, you know, it was all about kind of, OK, well, if you're able to make movies, why on earth are you doing TV? You know, whereas now it's all about TV, which is kind yeah. of funny the way it's gone. But um, she she takes a project that she's passionate about and she, and she works. She's a grafter and uh, so much so that she's, um, you know, done done a bit of work for Amazon recently as well. You know, her she's still very much around. You know, I'm 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 kind of eager to see what she's going to do next. And of course, a lot of um, she's been back in the news an awful lot lately, and justifiably so, uh, with the 25 year anniversary of Clueless last year and stuff like that. So, you know, there's a lot of people uh, revisiting Amy Heckerling, and I think uh, it's it's fantastic. I think she deserves a lot more recognition than than she would have had, uh, you know, um, in her career till now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think the I'm just the thing about Clueless as well because I remember thinking it at the time um, when I was watching it that a lot of people would have who if they were behind Clueless they would have looked at um, uh, the, the character of oh jeez what's her name now Cher yeah they would have looked at Cher played by Alicia Silverstone and they would have played her off as the ditzy blonde person who is valued there's no value to them really mm. and i'm just very impressed with amy heckling because you're telling uh, telling us that she kind of resented the sunny disposition of yeah. uh, people in california and if anything sure is an embodiment of sunny uh, well it's uh, funny um, that you say that actually because i have a whole story about that when we talk about the movie because uh, oh, really? that's uh, she completely went against her inner uh, new yorker that's, <laughs> yeah that's to, to 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 bring share to to the to the to life but i have a nice story about that oh, great. Uh, about well, what look, she says, we'll, yeah. we'll leave it to later on but i just wanted to, to add very quickly that i think she uh, gave the character she said yes look you can be feminine you can um like shopping you know pink you can like all these things but you can still be capable and passionate and stuff which i think was very um maybe a grown-up attitude for the early 90s Mm. i would say yeah totally totally and it's it's there's there's so much um i think that 
can be admired in that movie and its mm. representation of women. And again, it's something that Amy Heckling fiercely fought for. Again, which we, we'll chat about that though a little bit later yeah, on. But Ross, absolutely. to your pick, because yes. your pick is way more famous than Amy Heckling, as I just mentioned. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, she is. I suppose we were shining the spotlight. This person doesn't need any spotlight shown on them. <laughs> um, so I decided, but I decided because genuinely, like one of my favorite, you know, filmmakers uh absolutely i wanted to focus on nancy myers she's a writer producer director and if you're into your romantic comedies like i am <laughs> then you probably know who nancy myers is so she's written produced and directed films such as what women wants something's gotta give the holiday it's complicated uh, and quite recently the intern um, she both wrote and directed the Parent Trap remake with with Lindsay Lohan, which I think was her, probably for one of her first movies I, I, I seen as a child. Um, she's written for Private Benjamin, Irreconcilable Differences, uh, Baby Boom and The Father of the Bride film series. So basically, if your mum likes a movie, it's very like it's very likely that Nancy Myers is involved in some <laughs> way. And that is in no way trivializing the uh, movie taste of mothers or indeed talking down Nancy Myers in any way, because I actually kind of always hate that when people, um, uh, you know, disregard movies and say, ah, that's a, that's a movie for teenage boys, or that's a movie for teenage girls, or that's a movie for mums, or that's a movie for dads. I think, it, I think she makes fantastic movies, but you can totally see why mothers love Nancy Myers. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, look, um, you know, when we're talking about Nancy Myers, and you, you were talking about how Amy Eckling was one of the highest grossing uh, female directors of all time, and Nancy Myers is, is very much in that category as well. Um, at one time, uh, she was the highest grossing female director. She had actually overtaken Penny Marshall, who, um, yeah, and Penny Marshall is the first woman in Hollywood to direct a movie that gr- grossed over 100 million at the box office. And that movie was big. And it was also called Big, incidentally, starring Tom <laughs> Hanks. Um, uh, yeah, but uh, look, I, th- I think the record now stands with someone like Jennifer Lee, um, who directed both the Frozen movies, which is totally understandable. But in the, in, the, in the 2000s, Nancy Myers just had hit after hit after hit. So look, if you even look at the numbers, like the movies she directed have brought in over 1,351,000,000 in worldwide the movies she's written for brought in over a billion and even movies she's produced have brought in like one billion six hundred forty two million dollars so she's brought in an absolute fortune uh, and when we look at you know her her own movies that she directed like her directorial debut uh 1998 the parent trap the, the remake of the parent trap which i already mentioned like that was the weakest at the, at the box office of the, all the six films she's directed and still made over 92 million dollars which is insane um, like her 2000s movie, What Women Want, starring Helen Hunt and, and Mel Gibson made $374 million, And it was like the fourth highest grossing movie that year. So she's a real good, I suppose, sure bet for, for producers and stuff like that. Um, but besides the numbers, there is something really just enjoyable about a Nancy Myers movie. Uh, I once heard her, her films described as comfort incarnate. And I think... That's pretty much on the money. Um, you love a bit of comfort, Ross. I you love do, a bit I of do. Like, like a lot of people, you know, everyone watches movies for different reasons at different times for for different reasons. I like to be challenged by movies. I like movies that make me think. 
Um, I like movies that make me think in a different way, but sometimes I just like a comfortable, warm hug of a movie. And that's, <laughs> that's really what Nancy Meyer... Like, a she, movie with a, a thousand, a multi-thousand dollar kitchen that you can just go, I wish that I had that kitchen. Well, yeah, well, that is an interesting thing because all her, all her films do have very lovely, uh, massive houses and... It's very much uh, upper middle class white families with no real financial issues or other problems. Um, so they have no issues really, except for, I suppose, whatever their love lives or personal um, drama that's going on in their lives. But, you know, that's, I suppose the same reason why people watch Friends. You don't have to, you don't have yeah. to worry too much. Yeah. Um, like I know, often- Friends have a few problems. Come on. They don't really. Yeah, they're, all, they're all friend related problems, aren't they? Mm. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose. I, I suppose as you're talking about Penny Marshall there, it is like, as you're saying, you know, this idea of the hug and also kind of completely immersing yourself in a like, you know, dream world of fantasy where you can like, you know, live the, the lives of these characters in these massive houses with their no money problems. It is great. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like she often collaborates with Diane Keaton and Steve, Steve Martin. And if you don't feel at ease or at home watching Diane Keaton and Steve Martin on screen, I, I don't know what to tell you. There's something mm. wrong with you, you know. <laughs> um, like, I remember I've, I read a really uh, interesting article um, on Vulture. It was about Nancy Myers. And they described Nancy Myers' movies so perfectly. Um, if, if I may, I'll just read it out to you now. Uh, it was saying, in Myers' films, there's an overwhelming sense of coziness and fairness and an understanding that nothing will go wrong that cannot be corrected. Nobody looks for loves, but everyone stumbles upon it. The protagonist appears at least once in a pale monochromatic outfit often all white <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah which is a slight indicator of feminine strength there is at least one hospital visit often as a byproduct of sex and at least Keanu one Reeves hot will doctor. often be the, the director oh, the yeah yes. and at least one hot doctor <laughs> I think, yeah. I think she would agree with that one um, the protagonist gets a little too drunk or stoned for the first time in years and while everyone is surprised they agree this is good for children when they appear are precocious and rye and there is at least one beautifully roasted chicken and a lot oh, of yeah. white wine <laughs> <laughs> i love it <laughs> take me perfect? to a nancy myers movie now no Isn't this is the thing you, you want to live in a nancy yes myers. That's what I mean. yeah. you know what i mean it's not i don't think it's art i don't think well no i don't want to oh no no I've, come on i've now. enjoyed mr Highbrow. i've enjoyed many no i've enjoyed many a nancy myers movie so i don't want to poo poo it but <laughs> yeah. i you know there is a little bit of kind of this is like Ikea, just in, in film form. <laughs> <laughs> you see what my it. aspirations, my aspirations are Ikea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I don't really mind that either, because, do you know, <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's nice to watch. It's nice to watch. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah. What, I don't know. It's, it's Ikea porn. Home decorating The homes do porn. look fantastic. Yeah. The homes yeah. look yeah. fantastic and unrealistic. Yeah. But I, I suppose some part of that, and you mentioned, um, I'm not sure if you mentioned me here, but earlier on you, we were talking about Nancy Myers and you, you were talking about the beautiful kitchens in it. But I suppose Nancy Myers came from a family of bakers. And when she was kind of getting her start in, in filmmaking, she opened her own like cheesecake company. And apparently it was so successful that a restaurant offered to expand her business. But she turned it down because she was getting so many so much script work. So you can see why she might want to incorporate a, a lovely, fully, um, a fully facilitated kitchen into her into her into, into her it. movies as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. But like she has been working 
like she's been working since the 1970s when she first got her start in public television in Philadelphia. Uh, she moved to LA in her early 20s. She started off actually, strangely enough, as a production assistant on the game show The Price is Right. And she actually uh, appears, I think, on the first episode as a production assistant in that. Um, but before long, of course, she was she was working as a producer and and made her worked her way up to to writing her own scripts. But I think her talent was pretty obvious from from the get go because unlike many other people who go to LA to get into the business, um, she was able to quit her job after just like two years and focus on writing. And um, the interesting thing I think about Nancy Myers is she she says she wasn't. Um, like the likes of Scorsese or Spielberg who knew from a very young age that they wanted to make movies and were trying their best to you know make movies themselves uh, from their teen years like she studied college or journalism in college and really only became interested in screenwriting in in her 20s after seeing The Graduate um, but I think an overriding influence for her was the, the Mary Tyler Moore show which is for anyone who doesn't know, it's an American sitcom, um, which was about who's the uh, star? Who, who's yeah, in it? <laughs> I, I'm not sure who the star was, uh, <laughs> but but Mary Tyler Moore, um, she's she played an unmarried, independent woman focused on her career, uh, and in her her career was an associate producer on a news program, and um. This isn't really that much of a surprise when you think about the kind of stories and themes that Nancy Myers looks at in her movies. And at the time in America, having a television series uh, on primetime TV that focused on a female character who was not married or in any way dependent on a man was a bit rare in the 70s. And you can see why that would have an influence there. Uh, you can see why that would have an influence on her filmmaking. Because uh, like Mary Tyler Moore, the women in her movies are independent, uh, career-minded, and the men in their lives are often incidental, I would say. Um, but yeah, she, like, as well as that, like, I'm not sure if the Mary Tyler Moore show got any pushback from the American public at the time, but she experienced a bit of pushback with having a female front of project with her first movie, uh, which was Private Benjamin. Um, but I think we'll get back to that in a little while. Perfect. So we better talk about at least one of these movies in depth from uh, these amazing female directors. Niall, we're going to swing it back to you now. Who, what have you, okay, you've cooked a noir, yeah. haven't you? I have, yes. And I'm surprised you've not seen it. No, if you I've want not. to see it, mm. I have to say there's a fantastic transfer of it on YouTube. You can watch it for free. The Hitchhiker from 1953, directed by Ida Lupino, who's the director I'll be talking about. And, you know, you can you can watch it for free, as I say there. Um, it's it's only a brisk one hundred and like one hour ten minute. That's oh, all. Grand, yeah. So it, mm. it and you can really see in the direction of it. She's cut away anything that is not necessary in this. So she not only produced it and wrote it uh, with her uh, partner at the time, but she also directed it. And it follows two guys: Ray, played by Edmund O'Brien, and Gilbert, played by Frank Lovejoy, who go off on a fishing trip. And it takes a terrifying turn when they pick up a hitchhiker, which you should never do, especially in movies. Never pick up a hitchhiker. Ever, ever, ever. Ever, ever. ever. <laughs> and that the hitchhiker is played by William Talman. And he turns out to be a, a psychopath, basically, on the run from the law. He's gone on a killing spree. Um, and as he 
as he drives along with these guys, he lets them know that as soon as they're no longer useful, he's going to kill them. Um, the two friends over the uh, one hour, ten minute kind of plot, they um, they kind of try to escape. Um, but there's a particular physical affliction that this hitchhiker has. He has a, a, an eye that never closes, even when he's oh. asleep. So <laughs> it's creepy. impossible for them to, to tell. And it's a really creepy movie. Yeah, Foss, impossible for them to tell. A really bad affliction for a hitchhiker would be having no thumbs. Having no thumbs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can we cut that out, please? <laughs> um, it makes it impossible to, for them to tell when, when they can make a break for it. Um, so this came out the same year as a movie I talked about there, uh, the kind of weepy one, The Bigamist. Uh, but it's a completely different universe. And it shares one of the cast. So uh, Edmund O'Brien plays uh, the bigamist in the bigamist and he's also one of the captives in the car here at the mercy of this trigger happy killer um but this film really is is so brisk and fantastic and really is rightly held up as one of the highlights of the film noir genre um it plays the conflict for all it's worth um you've got a huge amount of sweaty suspense is what i called it watching it because <laughs> these guys are just it's all confined to this car really once they pick up the the psychopath it's all about these two guys in the car with him um and ida lupino's direction is so assured um and so much uh, like you can tell that she played in all these film noirs maybe you know some of them like roadhouse which is not based on the patrick swayze or the patrick swayze is not a film is not a remake of it but it's it's also it's it's a great film and uh, you know these films like the big knife and things like that that she really kind of knew noir and like i say it's so claustrophobic um and most of it takes place because they're driving from arizona i think down through mexico because this guy kind of makes them kind of go to to make his escape she never relax, relaxes the tension for a minute. Um, and you've just got these three really good actors, a car and a lot of scenery, which is great. And her impressive talent as a writer, producer and director. Um, but I think and maybe we might have a chance to talk about it is what makes um, a movie directed by a woman different. To, like this could have been directed by any one of a million directors who were working at the time but what she brings to it is a great amount of emotional sensitivity um, that you've got these two friends who they have this friendship and like in a in a worse movie it would be about kind of I'm gonna go for the gun now no you know what I mean oh god oh. I'm gonna you know and it what what you get really is this taut and tough and there's no macho glorification at all and it's a real gem, you know, and what you find out is that these two guys only through their friendship can are they going to get out of this, really, if they both agree on kind of what they're going to do. Um, and it's it never resorts to cliche, which, you know, you might think from a movie from 1950, um, you know, it, it might dip into that. But I talked earlier on about the fact that um Ida Lupino had on when she directed she had on the back of her director's chair mother 
and you know uh, mother of us all she said and she's certainly I think the mother of independent film and this the fact that this film I think is a film that people can watch on YouTube and go and see if you like film noir movies you're gonna love it it's great it's it's a real tense ride and don't pick up hitchhikers oh <laughs> and in what way are the are the women are, are there many female characters there in this? are no female characters ah, in this okay now, so it wouldn't even a reference the, it wouldn't it pass would not, what you call it no, test the bechdel test it wouldn't the bechdel really. test. and i think that's i don't know now i don't know if it would, it, i think it's it's a testament to her going i don't want to cut back to mm. these two guys have wives and children at home but she goes, we don't need it. And that's why yeah. it's a lean one hour, 10 minutes. She just goes, no, the story we're telling is this. It's not a, it's about two guys who pick up a hitchhiker. That's what we're going to follow. You know, and so. interestingly, you know, she doesn't bring in the femme fatale then. No, there's nothing yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a film noir, I guess, in the case that you would say the, the lighting and things mm. like that. But um, it's also, I mean, you've got, two central not the killer but the two guys who pick him up like there's reference made to them being war veterans you don't really learn how they became friends one of them is just like oh god i haven't i haven't left the kids for and my wife for this long since the war but you know it's it's all as the best films are it's it's show don't tell you know what i mean yeah. it's all little mm -hmm. hints that you kind of go oh well this could have been a much worse movie and twice as long yes but she and it really shows because like i say she was adept at telling uh what i don't want to call them women's stories but mm. stories about rape and stories about unwanted pregnancy and things like that um but I, I'm not I'm not I think this really shows that she could go yeah I'll do this as well yeah of mm. course and I'll do it brilliantly and I'll do it as well as any other male director could because oh, the fantastic. setup to me sounds like Hitchcockian do you know the oh yeah I mean, it's, it's got a lot uh, uh, in common with that but yeah, like I say like it's a great watch it's a tense sweaty watch mm. uh, most of it is set in the car as they're driving along you've got uh, two great uh, central performances and then the the killer is one of the creepiest horrible like he's got no conscience whatsoever um so now you made a really interesting point there about how the movie um might have been handled differently by a different director and you said that um with a, a female director that they brought a lot of emotional intelligence to the movie I'm not really sure how I, how I feel about that kind of argument because I'm not sure if necessarily a man or a woman directs a movie that they're bringing anything with their uh, from their gender along with that because if you look at some like some Catherine Bigelow movies for example like Point Break or The Hurt Locker or Zero yeah, Dark Thirty yeah I, I think that I I agree with you but not in 1950 Ross yeah yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say <laughs> it's the era to cut it's you off before you start uh, listing you know great movies from I think this is it's really all about <clears throat> the, the time that it was made in you know what I mean mm. so um, I mean I don't know I like uh, yeah I don't know but in 1950 I think there would have been men who made a much worse version of this film mm. yeah I can actually I can see the version you're talking about it would definitely have all the tension but probably more of uh, machismo in it 
Well, do you know, I, I think, you know, contrary to that, to the argument that you're, you're making there, Ross, my director brings every bit of her gender, I think, to, to, to my pick, you know, and I think um, it's coming in, in this sort of, I suppose, second uh, stage in her career. Like I mentioned earlier on, you know, she had this great debut, you know, she's Fast Times at Richmond High, then things go a little bit awry, then she had, with Johnny Dangerously, then she has, you know, a big uh, success with Look Who's Talking that she writes and, and directs, but then she doesn't achieve the same level of success with Look Who's Talking too, and she does kind of get punished an awful lot for things. Essentially, um, the Clueless script was born out of failed attempts to capitalise on the success of Look Who's Talking too. so uh, the uh, a script was rejected by Disney for being too smart. This is Look Who's Talking To. Um, so Heckerling says, all right, you want dumb? I'll show you dumb. So <laughs> her, it's kind of a cinematic sleight of hand because it's an excessively smart movie about dumb people. <laughs> um, and, you know, I suppose, as you mentioned there earlier on, Ross, you know, this idea of um, people like Cher being dismissed as ditzes or airheads, usually mm. teenage girls. So she very much wanted the focus to be on women. And um, again, she ran into trouble uh, with with executives because they were kind of saying it was too excessively female. They wanted more male input into this, but the men are very much kind of on the on on the sidelines. It's all about the female characters again. Scott Rudin steps in and attaches his name to it. Um, uh, Paramount. Uh, that's who picked it up then at the time. But um, according to to her agent, uh, you know he he says now of course you'll run into nine hundred ex studio executives who said. Oh, I really wanted to make Clueless. He said they all had a chance to make it. Everybody passed on it two or three times. So <laughs> that just goes to show you. Um, so just to give a bit of a background uh, on this and just going back to kind of that idea of um, this idea of optimism that Amy Heckerling does not possess at all. Uh, she just when she's talking about uh, Clueless, you know, 25 years later or whatever, she says she identifies as Ty the skater girl who uh, the heroine makes over, uh, played brilliantly by the late Brittany Murphy, um, not Cher, which I suppose won't come as much of a surprise to a lot of people mm. uh, that might be reading up about Amy Heckling. But um, the she says the creation of the most famous character she's ever written was something of a thought experiment, an attempt uh, at embodying a certain kind of optimism that doesn't come easy to me. Uh, she says, I was remember reading Emma, which of course this book is massively uh, based on. And she says, I remember reading Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and I just looked at those characters and I gravitated to how positive they could be and I kind of went with it. So that's kind of where Cher's eternal optimism uh, kind of comes from or whatever. Um, she says that out of all her movies, it's the one that she looks back to most fondly. And um, she says, I just loved that period. It was a big escape for me as well. Um, Again, you know, uh, in the years since it was released, it's spawned a book series, a three-season TV show, a glitzy Broadway production, but of course it always comes back to the original pop culture comedy starring Elisa Silverstone as the eternally optimist uh, Obscene Wentley, high school socialites Cher, uh, who's become so, so iconic. Even her costumes made their way, you know, the, the <laughs> iconic costume that you see, that made its way back into high street fashion there not that long ago as well. Um, you can get, I think, a, Hollywood, or a Halloween costume. 
You can. You can. You were, you were Googling. Where are you, Niall? You are Googling there. Oh, that's, here. His, that's his search history all over. That's what I'm going on. <laughs> but, you know, as I, as I mentioned there, you know, sometimes when you look back at some of these movies that we've loved, um, and we have spoken about that extensively um, throughout the podcast, some of them don't age well. This definitely does. And it is noted for its diverse casting and gender equality. Um, you know, you've got uh, African-American leads there alongside Cher, you know, in this as well, which at the time definitely uh, would be few and far between. So it started off as a TV pilot for Fox. And of course, they didn't make that. And then 13 years later, she revitalized um, the teen genre with, of course, uh, Fast Times at Richmond High. So she decided to go back to this then um, and it uh, was inspired by Jane Austen's Emma. So for people that don't know it, it follows plucky overachiever Cher as she plays matchmaker to her best friend, Ty, who's a new girl in the school. Um, uh, and it's very much about these extremely wealthy Beverly Hills uh, high school students. As I mentioned, you know, it's really, uh, uh, Cher wants Ty to get along in the school and she feels like losing this kind of skater girl, you know, uh, look is going to help her uh, but it's you know an awful lot more than that it's it goes through an awful lot of um, different uh, issues you know uh, throughout the actual movie so at the time you know again they sort of thought that uh, it was making a movie for just girls would limit the audience they wanted something that would appeal to boys as well uh, and she says Amy Heckling says there was a lot of thinking in Hollywood that it was a, um, that was a bit old fashioned and less about people of colour women and gender they wanted to see young boys uh, which they thought were the major audience and again you know judging from her earlier work you know with uh, Fast Times and Johnny Dangerously and National Lampoon's European Vacation as well mm. and of course look who's talking it's less about male dominated comedic sensibilities and very much on the on the female experience here with this one um and it's 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 a fantastic movie it looks amazing it's got a great storyline you know it's the kind of movie that you'd like your teenage girls to be watching you know uh and and i think um a lot of that has to do with as well heckling's fantastic eye for casting and you know she would have uh, plucked uh, uh, Paul Rudd uh, out of you know I suppose relative obscurity at the time this is one of his early roles and I think uh, she did an excellent casting in him as the uh, obnoxious stepbrother Josh or whatever. He's not he obnoxious. Ah, you it's, see, that's I can, the whole point. You can you you can relate to him, and I can see why. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, you know she another sort of. Um, uh, excellent cast of course was uh, Alicia Silverstone and she had been uh, well, she spotted her in the Aerosmith video uh, crying uh, and she said yeah that's that's my share and she went from there again you know a quarter of a century later audiences who grew up on on Clueless have started making themselves known we mentioned this uh, director uh, already Olivia Wilde she made Booksmart and uh, you know it would have been the likes of Clueless and Fast Times that would have inspired her uh, to, to go into movies and uh, specifically directing uh, so it's fantastic to see you know Amy Heckerling um, promoted and, and uh, celebrated by female directors that are you know in the director's chair now but um, if you haven't seen Clueless or if you have seen it you just got to watch it again it's fantastic oh, it'll yeah. make you it's happy great. 
It is really, it's a real feel-good film. Oh, it's a great watch. It's unbelievable. Actually, you know what? It draws a couple of comparisons, I think, um, with with my pick as well, which is Private Benjamin, uh, one of Nancy Myers' movies. And it was actually her, the the first movie she, she wrote, and she did that alongside Charles Shire, who eventually she married and then divorced and, and Harvey Miller another friend um, but it's basically look you can see the comparisons there it's a movie about a spoiled young woman who wants to marry rich um, but in this case she ends up joining the US Army after her husband's death um, as you do as you do <laughs> yeah as you do um, and that, as I was saying earlier on it might have been rare at the time to have something like the Mary Tyler Moore show a female fronted sh- show on TV um, and similarly a female fronted movie was not really considered financially viable at the time um you you noted uh Sinead that like a lot of studios passed on clueless and um according to nancy myers the script for private benjamin was turned down by pretty much every studio in hollywood more than once um but when she got goldie hawn on board you you think mm. it might have opened up doors but they still had difficulties um, Goldie Hawn was told that the, that the movie could be a career ender for wow. her. But she, yeah, but she, like she relented with it, and I, I think she put a bit of pressure on Warner Brothers to buy the script, uh, and she came on as an executive producer, which was her first time to produ- producing a movie, which just kind of shows you how much she believed in in the script. And I think it was kind of tailor written with with uh, Goldie Hawn in, in mind, which makes a lot of sense if you've seen this movie. Um, but look, she Goldie Hawn apparently she never really planned on becoming a producer but she just wanted to create and i think a lot of the movies we're talking about today um are just about creating better roles um for women and in this mm. case goalie Hawn, um she just wanted to create a better role for herself and really loved the idea of ben or of private benjamin i keep saying benjamin button <laughs> private benjamin. um so yeah as i was saying the, the the plot of this movie basically follows goldie hahn she's playing it like a materialistic somewhat ditzy character at the start of the movie much like sure you might you might say uh, and in this case she's very determined to kind of marry well as you might say and be looked after financially um her husband who she does marry at the start is, is played by albert brooks uh, he's a well-to-do lawyer um, who maybe seems more interested in Goldie Hawn's sex appeal than her personality and he always seems to be constantly working all the time um, like during their wedding which is kind of shown at the start of the movie he's looking over someone's lease at the wedding and you know that night uh, you know the wedding night he's he's taking kind of a work call saying look ring me during the honeymoon so he's very much a, an overworker and uh, it's probably not surprising then that he well I, I presume he has a heart attack but he he dies anyway that night while they're while they're having having sex on their relations. wedding night yeah they're having relations <laughs> on their wedding night and he ends up he ends up dying like on top of her uh and you know obviously she's left distraught and i i'm not sure now how much real love maybe there was between the two characters i think she may have saw him as um a kind of a meal ticket or something like that you know not a not a really um i, I don't think there's any badness in her character or anything like that but I, th- I think she kind of had her life planned out uh she knew exactly where she she wanted to go in life and now after her husband dies she's kind of stuck doesn't know where to where to go doesn't what to do next and she has a bit of a you know a bit of a, a mental breakdown and um she's there one night and she decides to call a late night caller show um 
and just talks about her problems. And another listener listening in uh, says, look, I, I think I can help you out of your rut. And she agrees to meet him. Uh, as it turns out, the caller is played by Harry Dean Stanton, um, who we might have mentioned in our That Guy episode from a few weeks ago. But um, as it turns out, he's more than just a sympathetic ear. He's actually a recruiter for the US Army. And uh, he kind of tells her, look, the army of the 80s, it's not, it's not what you think it is. <laughs> Vietnam's over. It's uh, its far more glamorous than you think. Uh, he shows her pictures of like these exotic locations and, and uh, like great accommodation. And he's talking about all these really exciting opportunities um, she gets to avail of if she signs on. And of course, being in the midst of a bit of a breakdown and with no real options or no real direction in life, she agrees. She, she says, this sounds fantastic. Um, so she signs up and now obviously <laughs> when she joins the army and she goes to the boot camp, it isn't at all what she expected or indeed what Harry Dean Stanton's character promised her at all. She finds herself very much in a, in a fish out of water type setting. And this was kind of a trend in the, in the 80s. There's a load of these um, movies that kind of centered around cadet training. Uh, you have the likes of Taps, uh, Stripes, uh, Biloxi Blues. Police Academy. Police Academy, very true. Yeah, in that case, you know, for police instead of uh, <laughs> instead of the army. Uh, even in the serious um, side of things, you have the likes of Full Metal Jacket as well. Um, so Taps is pretty serious, though. Taps yeah, is not well, really tap- comedy. <laughs> no, true, 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 true yeah. enough. But anyway, Taps and Stripes and Biloxi Blues and yeah, Police Academy, they, it was getting very <laughs> comedic there as you go on. Um, but, uh, do you know, it's it was kind of a trend of movies at the time. And I thought that that's all this movie was going to be. Like a ditzy, a ditzy uh, Goldie Hawn going into the army with her high heels and being surprised by the push-ups and the obstacle, obstacle courses and the hard work involved. And very much it is at the start, but it kind of it kind of branches out um, as the story rolls on. And, you know, really despite the, the movie's initial hesitancy to go anywhere near a movie with it with a central female character and no male leads Private Benjamin was actually a really big success it was one of the biggest uh, box office hits of the year um, which was the year 1980 uh, it earned Nancy Myers a nomination nod for from the Academy for writing uh, as it did for, for Goldie Hawn and her co- co-star Eileen Brennan um, and it even went on to spawn a, a short-lived TV series as well, but I I think it's an important movie because like I thought it was obviously the scenes at the start with her like um, joining up. It's, it's very much in the same lines of stripes or something like that. I would have said uh, very much kind of played for laughs. But as the movie kind of goes on, there's much more to it. Like I think it's an important movie because it showed that movies. Well, first of all, it's it's, it's important for financial point of view because it showed that movies that center on a woman's experience can still be successful and indeed win win a claim and i think it probably paved the way for a lot more female-led movies in the future uh, a lot of people look at their checkbooks when they're looking to cash movies and if a, a film like this made a good return then of course they're going to go for it as well um like i really liked it it's one of those really watchable 80s comedy movies um it's a lot of fun but as well as that, it has a good message because near kind of the end of the movie, she has a relationship with a Frenchman, a Frenchman, and very much like she's going to repeat the mistakes that she made with her first husband, uh, Albert Brooks, by kind of letting other people decide her her life and kind of going the direction which she thinks other people wants. And you know, 
I think it, this movie has a good message. It, it shows that kind of fulfillment comes from self-determination. And I, I thought it had a more refreshing message in the movie than I expected when I went into watching it. I have actually seen it um, years and years ago when I was young. I very I, I couldn't really remember it too well. So it was great to watch it again. And I was surprised with the underlying message. Now this, again, it's not a movie that uh, Nancy Myers actually directed because I actually I'd seen all the movies she directed. So I wanted to watch something new. And it's a movie she wrote and her first kind of uh, soiree into, into, into filmmaking. But um, yeah, look, a fantastic movie on the surface a great fish out of war story but underneath you know i think there's a really good message about self-determination i was just going to ask because you picked one that is not directed by the directors mm. that we're talking about how different do you think it would be if it had been directed by it's just yeah it was directed well, by a man so how yeah, different was, would it be if it was directed by a woman yeah well i i think it's it was done sensitively like i'm not sure how much input they had, I'd say maybe Goldie uh, Goldie Hawn had a good bit of influence being a producer because it's very much her vehicle, and uh, I think she very much went went up to the task of being a producer. Apparently, she was the first one to arrive on set, the last one to leave at night. She um, she actually attended like a a six week training or a six week cadet course as well, which is probably like overkill for, in preparation for the role. Mm. But I think that maybe Goldie Hawn might have pushed for. Um, pushed for like a lot of the things we see in positive that are positive about this movie. I'm not sure uh, if Nancy Myers was doing it. There'd probably be a lot of people wearing monochromatic colors. <laughs> <But> <laughs> there'd be better kitchens. There'd be the better place. kitchens. Yeah, I, I, it, it would be uh, weird if it was a if it was a Nancy Myers directed movie because it wouldn't yeah. be in a comfortable suburbia. But uh... you're talking there about. Um you know, I suppose, strange moments in, in these female directors' careers. And, and this brings me nicely to, let's let, we'll be, let's let uh, Will sing it. Let, send, where is he? Send in the Wills. <laughs> 1,001 films to see before we kill you. You know, I was talking about, you know, how strong female focused uh, Clueless was. And of course, uh, that was later in Amy Heckerling's career. But this one was uh, her second um, directorial feature, Johnny Dangerously. And it couldn't be any more masculine than this. Now, I think um, this is a really strange movie. It's really strange. I don't know if any of you, have you both seen this or uh, before? I have seen it years ago and I've never re-seen it because it's quite hard to find. So hard to find. I, I had to, like, you can't even rent this on YouTube. I had a tricky experience watching it. It was not a good, great copy, to be honest. This was, (laughs) this was in my quest to, after Batman came out, to see everything Michael Keaton. Yes, in. yeah. And I failed. Well, I did get to see it, but it was like, yeah, I don't need to see that again. Well, you know what? You actually don't. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it's Michael Keaton, uh, as you said. He plays Johnny Kelly. By day, he runs a pet store. Everybody loves him. Uh, by night, he's Johnny Dangerously, where he's embroiled in crime. Uh, now <laughs> you should get, he, has, he should have a more conspicuous name if he's going to be in the world of crime. Maybe oh, listen, there's nothing inconspicuous Safety. about this movie. It's a complete spoof on. Uh, gangster movies of, yes. of the 1930s and it's you know uh, Amy Heckling had a huge love of James Cagney and the gangster movie genre and as I mentioned she didn't want to be pigeonholed into kind of teen uh, genre you know uh, early in her career so she decided to go for this one um, 
So, you know, he has this double life, Johnny Kelly. Uh, he, at home, he's a good boy. You know, he looks after his mother, played brilliantly, actually, by Maureen Stapleton. She's quite good. And uh, his sexually obsessed brother, Tommy, who turns out to be a lawyer then at the end. Uh, but he's he got a not-so-secret life as Johnny Dangerously. He's an up-and-coming criminal being groomed by local gangster Jocko Dundee, played by Peter Boyle. And uh, Johnny's crime money puts Tommy through law school and also um, the long list of ailments that his mother has. He ends up paying for an awful lot of this. But when his brother becomes district attorney, Johnny must protect him from the murderous Danny Vermin, uh, his kind of, um, I suppose, enemy in it. So this movie wants to do for gangster films what Airplane did for airports. <laughs> airports. <laughs> but it really, it doesn't. It doesn't. Um it does begin with some promise that it'll kind of be a great comedy. You have a kind of a weird title song uh, sung by Weird Al. And uh, you see Johnny, uh, he's this middle-aged pet shop owner, stamping prices on his animals using one of those tape labeling machines that they have in, in, in uh, you know, supermarkets. Um, a kid comes in, tries to shoplift, and it inspires Johnny to remember the days where he began his own career in crime. And you even have that... Uh, uh, re- reference to what's going on with the dream sequence you know the diddly do diddly do like Wayne's World kind of moment but of course you have every uh, comic twist on every cliche from the standard uh, gangster movie lines um, so you're kind of you're set up for fun you're ready for fun and then this movie tries to ram it down your throat pretty much uh short of you there will being, have fun you will have fun yeah and short of there being a you know a drum but um tish to single uh, signal when you should laugh uh, but I'm not laughing I'm a little exhausted by it all it's a bit too gag after gag after gag and even Michael Keaton you know as charismatic as he is and he really plays it and all is Michael Keaton-ness um, it can't rescue this movie for me it's a massive thumbs down I just I didn't enjoy it at all oh yeah that's terrible now I'm like I say I would have seen it and I would have been at the age probably that would have been ready for that because I would have, you know, loved Airplane and Airplane 2 and Naked mm. Gun and stuff like that. But I've never had... The, and I think the fact that it's so difficult to find now is mm. testament to the fact that it's a bit of a dud. Yeah, movie. you see, as well at the time, uh, just because you've just reminded me very quickly, Martin Brest, as I mentioned, uh, was a colleague of Amy Heckerling's at film school. She even dated him. And his movie, Beverly Hills Cop, which was a huge success, was on mm. at the same right. time. And it was devastating for her because uh, really people weren't going to her movies, that movie. Uh, they were all heading to Beverly Hills. But like kind of, I suppose a lot of these kind of uh, box office flops, it's kind of gotten, um, it does have a small cult following and uh, she does remember um, a time uh, where there was, oh, I think it was a couple of weeks after or a week or two after it had been released and it was kind of dwindling, you know, and she'd gone into one of the theatres and apparently the audience were quoting back lines uh, from the film so they obviously had seen it and liked it and so there was a little bit of kind of it finding that small audience but I think it definitely has to tap into if you're into that kind of humour where it's like here's the gag here's the slapstick here's the you know then you'll probably love it but it's just kind of a bit too stupid humour for me if you know what I mean she must have been really depressed when she found out that the room has a cult following as well (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. but it's weird like the other like Joe, um, Michael Keaton is the, the like the main guy but I think 
the other big name, he would have been bigger than Michael Keaton probably at the time, was Joe Piscopo. Yeah. He was, he was a huge stand-up comedian and had some uh, movies that they're all terrible, but like nobody remembers him. Like if you're gonna watch Johnny Dangerously now, it's because of Michael Keaton. It's yeah, not because of Joe Piscopo. And and even or you know Amy Herkeling. Yeah, you know even you know uh, for him at the time, just looking at movie reviews of, of the time uh, for this, they were saying how underused he is and kind of how he it's not played to he's not played to his um, strengths really at all. Like right. in it, um, so there was a lot of kind of criticism about kind of maybe underusing him. There is one clever thing about this movie that I will say, and maybe we can play a little clip of this. Um, but uh, you two are fargan ice holes. <laughs> 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 there's a lot of getting around the censor uh with the curses right. and that's very much amy heckerling in this and she she hams that up uh and there's one basically he's like the the rival nightclub owner and um i'm not actually sure where he's supposed to be from <laughs> but um he uh, hasn't the best english and he's calling them fargan ice holes there's a little bit of that what are you doing here, ice hole? Can a fellow enjoy a night out gambling with some of his pals? Don't bullshit me. Search the summon up, batch. Hey, we're clean, Maroney. You see, I don't bear no grudges, even though your boys have been muscling in on my territory. Why do you do that, Maroney? It's a free country, ice hole. And it's interesting uh, you should say that because I remember um, catching a um, a daytime playing of goodfellas i was in america at the time and uh, they were playing goodfellas during the middle of the day i couldn't believe it but i sat down to watch it and in some states in america um instead of bleeping out the curse words they overdubbed them with different oh. with different words oh and of course God. yeah melon i don't farmer. know melon farmer is that what it's called? Oh, yeah melon farmer yeah oh melon farmer instead of yeah instead yeah. of motherfucker <laughs> but, oh wait, wait you can't say that <laughs> um, but like i was surprised because goodfellas is a film with so many curses and there was some absolutely brilliant ones like instead of saying asshole they said armhole which doesn't make any sense yeah the curse out cheese jesus christ they cursed that out to say cheese and rice and, oh god and what was the one um shut the fuck up was shut the front door oh god <laughs> and, uh, yeah it was hilarious watching it it was brilliant but we why could would do an episode on, on censorship I think we could do a whole episode oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah. there's so yeah, much yeah, in that yeah, a, that'd, heavily, that'd a heavily retracted episode on censorship <laughs> yes uh, can I just ask because you said like we were talking about this is a very different type of movie mm. she was trying to get away from what uh, she'd been known from before and then she kind of went back to like with Clueless, yeah. she went back to the fast times kind of thing. Um, like I, I just wonder, like, is it a is it a case of that women go or that women in Hollywood or directors in Hollywood is like you you are good at this and this is what we will know you for and if you try to break out of that then we won't or is it just a bad movie? I think it's just a bad movie because okay. she had Clueless kind of in her mind for a long, long time. And it was something that, as, as I kind of said there as well, she kind of pushed for. And, you know, I think Hollywood, even at the time that it was released, they kind of weren't fully ready to kind of let it be female, female centered and all of that. I think, to be honest with you, the choice of Johnny Dangerously was probably a little bit of naivety, a little bit of her going, no, I'm going to do this movie because I love 
gangster movies and I'm not going to be pigeonholed. And then the return to that, um, I think was the, the, really the uh, motivation for her going back to that kind of teen genre again because yes, she had made her name for that so it might have been a bit safe but also she wanted to bring this female-led you know story to the to the screen and i think in getting around executives and all of that said it in a high school and let's go back to what they know i'm good at you know right yeah and they'll trust they'll trust and, and there's been enough she's had you know really i think hollywood has been unfair to her you know uh various um you know box office failures and maybe small uh, errors in judgment on her part in terms of the choice of movies that she's made you know you wouldn't necessarily see that for a male director you know where they've made maybe a, a bad movie and they're not given the same freedom and as i mentioned there had she not had say john landis uh, scott rudin in her corner kind of arguing yes. for her she may not have maybe made these movies who knows yeah. you know it's time to murder a scene. Okay, so a scene that we've selected is from the iconic movie Clueless. And uh, this particular scene is just after Cher and Ty have a bit of a fight. Their relationship has become strained as Ty gets more popular. Uh, so her and Cher have a fight and then straight after pretty much she has to take her driving test. But she's quite distracted and it doesn't go that well. Here's a little taster of that scene. Anyway, why should I care what Josh thinks? Why was I letting it throw me into such turmoil? Watch out for the bike run! Oops, my bad. What are you doing? You can't take up both lanes. Get in the right lane. Run some- Oh, should I write them a note? Pull over up here and turn off the engine. That right there. Oh. Are you going to take me somewhere to make left-hand turns? We're going back to the DMV. It's over? It's over. Well, how did I do? How'd you do? <laughs> well, let's see, shall we? You can't park. You can't switch lanes. You can't make right-hand turns. You've damaged private property, and you almost killed someone. Offhand, I'd say you failed. Failed? And action. I had an overwhelming sense of ickiness. Even though I apologised to Lucy, something was still plaguing me. Like Josh thinking I was mean was making me postal. Move into the right lane. Anyway, why should I care what Josh thinks? Why was I letting it throw me into such turmoil? Watch out for that bike rider, hey! Oops, my bad. What are you doing? You can't take up both lanes. Get in the right lane. Not so close. Should I write them a note? Pull over here and turn off the engine. Yeah, yeah, right here. Are you, are you going to take me somewhere to make left-hand turns? We are going back to the DMV. It's over? It's over. Well, how did I do? How did you do? <laughs> well, let's see, shall we? You can't park. You can't switch lanes, you can't make right turns, you've damaged private property and you almost killed somebody. Offhand, I would say that you failed. Failed? Well, 
can't we just start over? I'm kind of having a personal problem. My mind was somewhere else. You saw how that biker came out of nowhere, right? I swear I'll concentrate. I drive really good usually. Isn't there somebody else I can talk to, a supervisor or something? You can't be the absolute and final word in driver's licenses. Girlie, as far as you're concerned, I am the messiah of DMV. Now get out of the car. I can't believe I failed. I failed something I couldn't talk my way out of. <laughs> and I know that this is not a good representation of the movie, <laughs> but if you watch to the end, you'll find that she actually is an intelligent, self-actualized woman who can make choices <laughs> for herself. And my, I, as a representative of the DMV, is also, I am a well-rounded character. Wow. I'm going home to my three beautiful daughters who I love and I am encouraging them to be scientists yeah yes um, well I hope that you enjoyed our really in-depth look at some amazing female film directors for this International Women's Day till next time film fans bye see you at the movies when the movies are ever gonna open if they ever open ever again happy International Women's Day you have been listening to The Real Take presented by Sinead Brassel Ross Leedy and Niall O'Brien our music was provided by actor, artist and musician Will Guppy you can find him on Instagram at will.guppy and you can find us on Twitter Instagram and Facebook at The Real Take Podcast if you would like to contact us to tell us how fantastic we are you can reach us at the Real Take Podcast at gmail.com. See you at the movies. <laughs>